So joining me now is Rick Holland, CISO of Digital Shadows, as well as Brian Neely from American Systems. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, could you maybe give us just a little bit of a background as to who you are, what you do at American Systems, and what your team focuses on? Certainly. Uh, good afternoon. I am the CIO and CISO for American Systems. I've been with the company for 24 years. Uh, American Systems, we're in a sector that operates, it's known as the DIB, the Defense Industrial Base. Uh, we've, we're one of the largest employee-owned companies in the U.S. We grew out of the Trident Submarine Program back in the 1970s. We've been delivering complex IT and engineering solutions to national priority programs since 1975. So all of the branches are, are our customers. We do business with the Army, the Navy, Air Force, the intelligence community, we're doing business with NASA. Our programs really range from things like the advanced fighter jets, the F-22A and the F-35 Lightning II, to technical and forensics analysis of IEDs, improvised explosive devices, to even now we're deploying secure cloud solutions for our customers. Uh, we basically take pride in helping keep our nation and citizens safe, so we work on any programs that are associated with that. And from a security perspective, on my front, um, we really have to deal deal with everything from highly resourced nation-state threat actors to simply poor decisions by our end users. So it's a, it's a wide gamut. Sure. So kind of operating as uh, a kind of a third party, right? Uh, third party contractor, I guess. What are some of the difficulties around that, which which a lot of people may not be aware of? Difficulties around protecting this environment. Yeah, exactly. It's it's challenging because you do deal with uh, a lot of highly resourced threat actors. You're dealing with people that that's their day job to attack and try to compromise your environment to try to exfiltrate your documents. So it's it's not like script kiddies or you know, part-time threat actors. These are people that that's their day job. That's what they do day in and day out. So it's, it's very challenging. What, what a, it's an interesting threat model you have. Um, When you, when you work with someone that not only has motivation and intentions, but then has capabilities and resources, you know, is, is detection and response, you know, your key strategy, you know, what, what advice do you have for folks that are listening that have similar threat models where it's, most definitely sophisticated, well-resourced adversaries that are targeting the environment. Yeah, detection and response are critical. It, you need to have uh, defense in depth is obviously key. Uh, you have to have a good team, and that's not just a, an internal team, but that's also uh, partnering with the right companies and, and using the right technologies. It's continuing to evolve your attack surface. Um, you need to be able to respond quickly. I think in this era, it's not simply protection, but how quickly you can detect and respond because there's always going to be that opportunity for an adversary to take advantage of something like a zero day or compromise the, the soft or underbelly of security, which is typically the users. So you just have to have a good plan in place. You've got to audit that plan. You've got to be able to uh, adapt quickly. You've got to keep up to date and current on all the technologies that are out there. Um, so it's 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 never boring. It's a lot of work, and I'm thankful that I have a very good team. Yeah, I can imagine you see uh, all kinds of things on a day to day basis. Uh, so, where does I guess digital risk protection kind of come into the picture for for you and the rest of the team? Well, as a contractor in the defense and space industry, 
Uh, we do deal with a lot of very sensitive customers and programs. So associated with that is a substantial amount of very sensitive data. So asset exposure is always a top concern and priority for us. So being aware of things like data leakage, so having proper notifications is very important. That's where watermarking and a good DLP data loss prevention program are key. And you really need to have somebody that can help you monitor that, not only the, the surface web, but also deep and dark web uh, to see if you have any leaks. That also goes along with, with passwords. Um, understanding if you do have a password leak is extremely important. Even though we use MFA for all access inside and outside of our, our boundaries, if you do have leak credentials, that still can be a, a, an indicator that there's been a potential compromise of either a network, a system, or one of your users. Um, site impersonation, that's also a big challenge for us. We typically see that being used in a, a threat actor trying to craft a more believable phishing campaign. So that's actually fairly common for us. And of course, we always want to keep an eye on social media for, for brand misuse or employees saying things that they shouldn't about sensitive programs. Uh, that's not, not really been an issue for us. I think our employees do a very good job of of keeping sensitive information to themselves and, and using it appropriately. So probably with the social media, it's more around third-party brand misuse, making sure that uh, the company's name is not used uh, when it shouldn't be. We have had that in the past because American Systems, it's a, it's a very common uh, naming convention, both American and Systems. So a lot of times it's confused with other entities. So brand misuse is, is a top priority for us. That's true. So you mentioned um, two-factor authentication, uh, Brian. We we have a new research report that's coming out in the next couple of weeks that basically does a big deep dive of two-factor authentication, and um, it goes over like smart cards, you know, one-time passwords and SMS tokens, and we also go into some of like the attacks that are around that as well. Um, do y'all see, do, uh, I guess, let me ask you a question that I asked somebody else this morning on, on, uh, about this, uh, how difficult do you think it is within your environment managing 2FA? How, how difficult do you find that to be? It hasn't been that challenging. Uh, we've been using two factor for a long time. We went through recently, we used to use RSA tokens and that just became unmanageable for us for the, the type of services that we provide and the environments that our employees work in. So we went through and did a complete analysis about 18 months ago and ended up changing the technology that we use. But, um, you know, we, we've had that as a mandate that all remote access has to be multi-factor. And we've also had that for elevated privileges. But we've re recently turned that on now for all internal access as well. So we have two-factor authentication. Even if you're, you're coming to work, working on a computer that's in one of our facilities, you still use two-factor authentication uh, to access all all network services and data. Yeah, that's interesting. So, Rick, what do you think about um, kind of the ways that we use 2FA as well? I guess like a smaller company, right? Well, certainly the smaller you are, it becomes a little bit more scalable, um, and you can grow your scope over time, which I'm sure is what Brian and company did. Probably not day one. Did you have that thorough of a deployment of uh, multi-factor authentication into the environment? I'm sure it was a journey to get where you are at today. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's certainly been an evolution. And, and it, you know, I think that the nice thing is, is that 
because of all the headlines that are out there and all of the breaches and all of the data leaks that you see, I think with our employees and the kind of, of work that we do, uh, they understand that it's, it's a, it, it, honestly, MFA does not take that much more to get access to an asset. And I think everybody realizes the importance of, of having these assets protected properly and have adopted it very well. Now, we have also seen, you know, some of the common ones that even I use outside of my company, uh, things like SMS. I'm not sure if that's the direction you were going, but uh, some of the flaws and vulnerabilities that are in SMS for two-factor authentication. So we do have that as an option for some of our services to do to use SMS as a form of two-factor, but we're, we're discouraging it at this point, and we're defaulting to one of the more secure MFA methods. I was going to say for for SMS specifically, we you know we go over like SSS, uh, sorry SS seven uh, hijacking, and you know also like token replay attacks and things like that. But um, but yeah, I think I think that's that's definitely something to be considerate of when you're when you're looking at two uh, FA rolling it out internally or externally or however you're going to do it. Exactly, and it 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 can be a disruption for the users. And it, it certainly adds some complexity to the back end um, when you're rolling out services. But uh, at some point, you have to realize that it, it's all worth it uh, for what you're trying to protect. I actually find that it's one of the better security controls you, you can put in place if you think about value of security control and what you get out of it um, for what the investment into it is. Because it really does talk about attack surface reduction having that just on external facing stuff gets you a long way. And then as you have it deployed you know, further inside the environment, you just get a lot of value out of your, uh, your security investment there. It also makes you kind of ponder, uh, does the second factor of authentication that you're using some sort of um, rotating token code, it almost makes the password irrelevant. And I know Microsoft and some other companies are trying to go towards passwordless and it does make a lot of sense. You know, we, we have, we're, we're almost a homogeneous Windows 10 environment. So we use Hello for Business for secondary authentication to the workstation. And one of the problems that that's presented now is that people are using a biometric so frequently, facial recognition or fingerprints, that they tend to forget the passwords. Oh, interesting. So they're using... They're used to using the second factor that we have to do a lot more password resets. Thankfully, it's self-service. But um, yeah, even I, I have a tendency to forget what my actual password is because I'm used to using my second factor along with something else um, and not necessarily a password. Well, if passwords were to die, I don't think many people would be disappointed by that. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully we'll get to that uh, sometime soon. Sure. That's interesting. Um, so I guess moving on from 2FA, um, I'll cover a couple of other different questions here. But what what do you see as sort of the biggest threat to the cybersecurity landscape or within the cybersecurity landscape right now? Well, for us, we're seeing a growing sophistication in attacks and in particular phishing attacks. We still see that as one of our most vulnerable areas. Uh, we are seeing some extremely well-crafted campaigns that have been targeting us. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, that is one of our, our weak spots when you go after a user. And it is tough when the adversaries can, can monitor you, can see what your employees are doing, follow on social media platforms like LinkedIn, uh, can follow all of your, your press clippings 
and anything you have that's uh, marketing material on your website, they can go out and, and craft a, a portal uh, website that looks very much like what you would be using, and they can do a good job at trying to trick an employee. Now, thankfully, we have secondary and compensating controls in place. So if an employee were, were to give up their credentials, of course, they're not going to be able to go up their two-factor. And also, if they were to click on a link that they shouldn't and it tries to exploit their desktop, uh, we, we certainly have multi-layers of defense that are sitting on the the asset, the workstation itself, that can help again, uh, pr protect against it. Uh, but certainly, growing sophistication of phishing attacks is very tough. We also have a, a program where we... we try to test our own employees. We call them uh, phishing simulations, but we've been doing that for many years where we will craft our own messages and send it out and see if an employee will click on it. Uh, we'll send up, we'll put a lot of clickbait in there and see if they click on it, whether it's giving away prizes or um, telling them that there's a, a salary document attached and to see if they'll, they'll fall for a phishing campaign, even though there'll be some obvious clues uh, that it's, it's not coming from us internally. So that's certainly a threat. Uh, for us, insider threats are always big. So an employee that has access to data, they should have access to it, but decides to steal it for one reason or another. Um, it's unfortunate, but it's all too common in the defense industry. Uh, we mentioned the, the SA, NSA leak earlier. Um, so you really have to stay vigilant and be on top of what your employees are doing. Least privilege always helps, but when the person is supposed to have access to the data that they need to do their job, uh, that can become challenging. So that's where things like user behavioral analysis can help out. Uh, so you can watch all the data flows and look for unusual behavior. Uh, and then finally, I think for us, this may be more of a, a non-traditional answer uh, as far as a threat, but it's becoming much more complex to maintain compliance these days around securing and protecting our data. You know, from a privacy perspective, we've dealt with for a long time uh, you know, things like PII and HIPAA and maintaining compliance for privacy. Uh, recently, we added GDPR, which has added a lot of complexity. But for us and in the industry we work in, there's always sets of data and data classification that we have to deal with. Things like ITAR, international traffic and arms regulations, uh, where we have to have specific controls around data. Uh, but recently, the entire defense sector has added a new standard that we have to be compliant with, which is called the NIST Publication 800-171. NIST is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. This is really a standard that we have to follow and follow it company-wide now. It's for protecting any kind of controlled, unclassified information. And there are 110 different requirements that are part of this. It ranges from how you do encryption to your MFA to even risk management. We've been NIST 800-171 compliant for many years, uh, but now NIST is adding a new standard uh, called 171B, and this is going to be really aimed at critical programs and HVAs, uh, high-value assets, which is adding 33 new requirements on top of the 110. And this is really designed around combating high-end sophisticated adversaries, things like APTs, advanced persistent threats. But what this is going to do is it's going to include areas like proactive threat hunting, uh, the fact that you're going to need to operate a full-time SOC with a response team that can be deployed to any location within 24 hours. 
This is talking about employing physical and logical isolation, purging data that you no longer need, which again, these are all best practices anyways. And then a big one for us is managing and controlling our supply chain, chain risk. Typically, when you work in the defense industry, you're working a contract that includes a fairly long supply chain from somebody that may be making a part to you know, engineering a piece of a system that gets rolled up to an integrator. And there are components and subcontractors all along the way in that supply chain. And typically, somebody higher up in the supply chain has a much more mature cyber program and is much tougher to infiltrate. So what a threat actor will do is try to get in somewhere lower in the supply chain. They won't have as sophisticated a program, but can use that as a chink in the armor to try to work their way in and, you know, laterally move throughout whatever connected environments may exist to get access to the data they need. And then, you know, finally, I don't know if you've heard of it, but there's a cybersecurity maturity model certification that's around the corner. So the de- the defense industry is really leaning on this CMMC, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. It's very much like CMMI, if you're familiar with that for software, where there will be different maturity levels, but instead of for your software program, it's going to be an independent verification of the security posture and maturity of your own program. So there'll be a third party that'll come in very much like a CMMI audit, but they'll come in for a CMMC audit and evaluate how well you conduct cybersecurity. And part of the baseline for that is going to be these these two NIST publications, 171 and 171B, as evaluating how mature your program is. And this is they're they're fast tracking this. Uh, the CMMC is going to probably be here early 2020, which I mean, it's almost August, so that's right around the corner. And we expect to see audits and implementation sometime mid to late next year. So this is very close. And I think it's it's it, it should be here. I think this is a great idea. I think having something that's a standard standard approach to evaluating security is 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 good for not only our industry, the d- defense industry, but for any organization whether it's financial or healthcare where you could actually have a standard where you could look at your security program and see at what kind of level your program operates. And obviously, just like with CMMI, it's not necessarily a snapshot in time. This is something that you have to continuously maintain, continuously get audited for uh, to assure that you're maintaining that level. And for us, it is another compliance standard that we have to check off, but we're sort of used to this style uh, we are CMMI level three, so we do that for our software. We also follow ISO 9001 for quality and AS9100 for aerospace quality. But it just, you know, again, adds another layer of complexity to to managing your overall cybersecurity program. Yeah, for sure. That sounds like, I mean, just those, the amount of uh, compliance and regulations that, I mean, defense contractors, defense in general has to stick with. That's That's quite a quite a hefty task alone. <laughs> well, it's, I'll tell you, it's it, for the, for the classified world, that area of our, our, our work has been very formal and organized and mature for decades. It's the non-classified portion, which we really haven't had much regulation around. I mean, even some of the, the other industries like healthcare and finance have had more regulation around how they protect data than the defense industry. So I know they're playing catch up, 
but I think they're doing a very good job, even though some people think that some of the, the things that they're asking are a bit onerous. Uh, I think it's needed. So we've got a lot of standards that they've applied lately and are some are right around the corner. For sure. Well, great. Uh, thanks so much, Brian. Absolutely. Listeners, if you want to hear more of these interviews and threat intelligence updates, visit our resources center at resources.digitalshadows.com. Uh, and thanks for listening and have a great day. <laughs>